everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 501, Talking Pata with Jack Down. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, it's been a while. How's it going? Yeah, things are going well. It's been a couple weeks, but yeah, weather has turned here. We've gone from drought to rain, just in time for the arc, which I guess oh, we'll, we'll preview on, on our next episode. But yeah, a little bit of a break, but good to be back. New season, and kicking off the season, the new season with a with a nice interview with Jack Downer. Uh, world two-time world pana champion so interesting discussion about football about pana and and also a pretty harrowing injury story yeah by far the gnarliest injury story i think i've ever had someone tell me like just shocking and as someone who who has you know has his degree in physiology i was i was just as enthralled at that story as the stories of him nutmegging Neymar, <laughs> which yeah. is uh, crazily impressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not often that we have an interview where you get a lot of name drops and followed by, and in a, I mean that in a positive way, and then followed by, I guess, uh, sort of, you know, an injury that would go down in the, in the medical history books. Yeah. Oh, actually, it, it probably is in some books. <laughs> yeah. It's probably in a case study somewhere, I'm sure, because of how rare the survival rate is. Who knows? Maybe this uh, podcast. Let's, let's, maybe let's not spoil anymore. Yeah, maybe this <laughs> podcast will start getting referenced in some medical journals. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so we haven't chatted in a while. We took a little break to to clear our heads. Is that what is that the break we're going to say we did? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you traveled as well, yeah. so we, we got to throw yep, some tra- travel into the mix. But yeah, in Stockholm, which. The disappointing part was I did not think the Swedish hockey season had started. And then when I got to my hotel, I turned on the TV and they are actually like a few games into the season. So I would have gone to a game because I think that'd probably be really cool. They're super, super into it. The only tough part is there's no team in Stockholm, which is interesting. So the, the closest team was about a two hour train ride away, which I still would have, yeah. I, I actually still would have done it. Like, you know, I had an extra day and it was during the afternoon. So you could have went to the game and still come back into Stockholm around like nine. It wouldn't have been a terrible time. Like it would have been fun. But I was also a little concerned that once you get that far out of Sweden, what's the level of, of English? <laughs> I would have been like, I, I, I don't know. And I, I th- it could have been a little difficult with just me going solo. <laughs> I think it's pretty consistent across the country for the most part. Um yeah, what did you do? Did you go to the, the ABBA Museum while you are there? I did not go to the ABBA Museum, and disappointingly, I did not go to the Nobel Prize Museum. I figure I don't want to go in there yet until I get to see myself on there, so I wanted to hold out. <laughs> okay. Right. I did go. Might I, be a while. I saw City Hall where they have the ceremony, so I got uh, you know a, a preview of what it'll be like when, you know, when I get the medal. Um, but I did the only, the only actually museum I went to, I went to the Vasa Museum, which for anyone. That's a super, 
Super cool. Anyone going to Stockholm, you have to go to the Boston Museum. And I won't ruin the story because I think the story is what also <laughs> makes it really great because it, it's it's crazy uh, what happened and how it happened. <laughs> so, um, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's worth just saying to people, it's a massive war wooden warship that sunk in the harbor and was just perfectly yeah. preserved in because the, the sort of salination the 17th, of the water was... It's yeah. like a 17th century ship that is 98% original. I think it was like 200 and over 200 feet long, like 230 feet or something like that. So it's, it's, it's a massive, massive warship. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth visiting. Yeah. Yeah, talk, talking about things that are 98% original... Oh boy! I guess someone who might not be coming back fully intact—a topic that I'm sure you are desperate to talk about. It's about Sam. Something. Did that... Sam get plastic surgery? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but not in an area we want to discuss. But I was going to say you've been you've been predicting the Trey Lance injury all season. Some would say this is a Duca curse because you've been throwing it around here, there, and everywhere. And during our break, Trey Lance suffered a an ankle break and is now out for the remainder of the season so it's jimmy garoppolo back in charge in san francisco yeah i mean obviously not something i want to see happen but there was concern when you are putting the ball into the hands of someone that you're going to ask to run and scramble and especially the way the niners offense is is there's going to be a lot of qb runs and qb sneaks and all of that so well I mean, Shanahan's getting a little bit of a backlash post-injury in just terms of how he was using Trey yep. Lance. He was on for a record-breaking pace in terms of number of carries as a quarterback. Like, Michael Vick holds the records for the most carries in a single season, and Trey Lance was on course to absolutely demolish that record if they continued to use him in the way that they were. Yeah. And in addition to the number of carries, I mean, a lot of the times they were just running him up the middle, which is ultimately then how he ended up getting injured. So it's not as if I don't think you can, the Niners coaching staff can exactly say that's just bad luck and we couldn't have seen it coming. It obviously is bad luck, but yeah, there was some reason for concern. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you can counter that by saying, you know, look at Josh Allen and the bills. I mean, the first game the bills played, I felt like Josh Allen was running the ball every other play. It was insane. And they've dialed it back a little bit. And I think it's going to be one of those things where in must-win games, they're going to let Josh Allen do what he needs to do. And if it's run 20 times, then he's going to run 20. But, I mean, he he's healthy so far, you know, and that's just the risk. I, and with a quarterback is it, it you never know where the hit they're going to take. And it's not like another position where, you know, the, the Giants with Sterling Shepard yesterday went down with a torn ACL. There's backup receivers. You know, you can back up a receiver. It's tough to back up a quarterback. <laughs> it is, although I guess the Niners have done it as almost as well as you could have. All, but I guess you're on your Josh Allen point. I think the slight difference is Josh Allen's like a pretty imposing physical unit, right? Like he can bounce off of. I thought Trey Lance is pretty big. No, he's he's tall, but he's fairly slight. You know what I mean? Like there is a difference, I think, when you look at Josh Allen versus Trey Lance and maybe he'll fill out as he gets a little bit older and maybe this year for him to focus on, you know, muscle development perhaps might give him an opportunity to become a bit bigger and more suited to taking NFL hits. But I mean, it's just bad luck. But So Trey Lance is I like- 6'4", 225 is what he's listed. 
and Josh Allen is 6'5", 237. So he's got about 15, 20 pounds on him. And that maybe yeah. that 225 is maybe generous to try and bulk him up because yeah. he does look skinny, <laughs> Trey Lance. Skinnier than Josh Allen. Yeah. And it look, it was, and we don't need to focus too much on the Niners, but it was also interesting. You had Jimmy Garoppolo come back, make his triumphant return, a nice sort of comeback performance, and everyone was talking about, well, how not this great for the Niners? They probably should have been playing Garoppolo from the start of the season anyway. They're probably much more likely to win the Super Bowl now with Garoppolo under center than they were under Trey Lance. And then he started again. Fast forward one week, you've got him running out the back of the, <laughs> the back of the end zone, doing all the things that it was kind of encapsulated. I think both of those, those two performances, that is Jimmy Garoppolo in a nutshell. It's pretty incredible to have been able to witness both of them in the space of seven days. Yeah, I did like, though, I, I sent it to you uh, in our chat about Jimmy Garoppolo puts his foot down on racism when he stepped out of bounds in the back of the end zone. He literally stepped on the the word racism that was on the back of the end zone. So it's kind of funny. Yeah, and that's a bad highlight to have attached to your name, right? Like that is yeah. now one of the things. Well, Orlovsky when... was very excited because Dan Orlovsky was notorious. Maybe that's the best part of his career yeah. <laughs> was that he probably he did that he he mistakenly stepped out of the end zone on a play so he was he tweeted like five times about how happy he was that he's not the only one now <laughs> the Orlovsky one was worse though it was because Jimmy Garoppolo stepped out Orlovsky like took it like went for a five yard six yeah. yard run out of bounds like it was a slight difference but yeah, but yeah no it does yeah, it, it's but, all right I mean, though guess... because it wasn't the it wasn't the goofiest play of the week. That goes no, to punt. <laughs> kicking kicking your teammate in the ass with a punt <laughs> that wasn't even close. No, and and look, it's clearly not the punter's fault. I think that's the big thing. Everyone always wants to blame the punter out of this. It wasn't his fault. You just his protection wasn't giving him the space necessary for him to be able to get the ball out. So you know it is. It's not him. He couldn't have done too much aside from just decide to not kick it. The crazy thing is that they somehow got away with it. You know what I mean? Like, in the end, it was almost a good play. Yeah. No, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the worst thing that could have happened. It's better to safety than the touchdown because the touchdown, then they're losing safety. They were still winning. The only downside was yeah. that they then made it a one, uh, one field goal to tie game. Or sorry, yeah, they did, but then you, they would have lost, right, with the field goal. They would have lost with the field goal. Yeah, twenty one nineteen. Yeah, but it just changed. I mean, you know, the punting from the position that they were in, probably best case scenario, the Bills, they are getting the ball back around midfield yeah. from that kind of position punting, whereas they were able to put the Bills all the way back on like their own twenty from the the kind of ensuing free kick or whatever. The it's, it's a free kick, yeah, post safety, isn't it? And yeah, it's so a punt. This, it's like that. Yeah. But a punt with no, just out of the hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So You know what they say, a punt it. a punt in the hand is worth is worth more than a punt in the end zone. Uh, punt, <laughs> a punt up the ass. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. A punt in the hand Sam's is worth been, more than a punt in the ass. <laughs> That's a great one. Sam's been, Sam's been living by that rule. There's our, there's our t-shirt right there. First t-shirt. <laughs> First t-shirt for the seventh time. But yeah, um, I mean, I guess the thing, just as a quick summary then, who who's your top five at the moment? Who do you feel 
And not necessarily, I guess not really in order necessarily, but like who would you be absolutely stunned if they're missing the playoffs? If they're missing the playoffs? Or are you asking me who do I think's got the best chance to win the Super Bowl? Because there is a little difference there because, you know, for instance, like Bill's Dolphins, they're in the same division. Maybe they get gypped out of a playoff somehow, you know, like versus a, a team like the Ravens, I think are right now kind of going to lock their division up pretty soon. <laughs> All right. Give me your five most likely Super Bowl winners then. I don't think it's changed much. I think it's the Bills. I think it's the Chiefs. I think it's the Rams. I think it's the Ravens, I guess, would have moved up. I think they just look really good on offense. Um, and they're doing enough on defense. But Lamar Jackson right now, if he can stay healthy, he's looking like his MVP season right now. And then fifth, I think you'd have to go with one more NFC team. And I think even though the Bucks lost to the Packers, the Bucks had almost no one on offense. I mean, all three of their receivers were gone. I mean, you can't do much when your fourth string receiver is your, your first string. And they still, their defense played really good against the Packers. And I think with a full, healthy offense, they easily win that game. So I'll put the Bucks in there just because I think you need another NFC team. Yeah, I agree with you. No, and, I, and I also agree. I mean, yeah, they're missing all their offensive weapons. It's also the Bucks, So who knows who they're going to sign over the course of the season? You know, by the time we get to the playoffs, we might be adding Gronk and Edelman back into the into the mixture or something. Who knows? But yeah, their defense looks really, really good. Yeah. And, you know, it is the old cliche that defense wins championships, but they do look very good. They do look impressive. And, it, and so if you're Tom Brady, you're going into games thinking, like they're one of the few teams who are probably going into games knowing like if we can get to 20 points, we've got a very good chance of winning against almost anyone. Yeah. And I guess so for that, me, that's the interesting. I was going to say, go ahead. there's two teams that we left out that a lot of people would have in there, which would the have Niners. been the Eagles, not the Niners. <laughs> <laughs> the Eagles and the Dolphins, obviously the two undefeated teams I don't have in there. I think they're right on the fringe. My concern is the Eagles are in the NFC East and I, you know, they beat Carson Wentz. That's wow. I'm not, not, not yeah. that excited about that, but the Dolphins looked good. But again, that's people are saying, I don't know if you saw the the meme of uh, congratulations, Dolphins, you beat the Buffalo Bills practice squad <laughs> because the Bills have like eight well, people injured. But I mean, I just think, I mean, having watched that game, I don't know how the Dolphins won. Exactly. And then when you look at all the all the stats afterwards, that yes. the, the the Bills ran fifty nine more offensive plays. They had you know two thirds of the game they had the ball. It's just if you replay that game exactly how it went, if you see what I mean, a yep. hundred times, the the Bills are winning it ninety six, yeah. ninety seven times. And that's with so, all their injuries. Yes, on it's defense. a good win. Yeah, it's it's a good win to have on their resume but you still feel like it was more fluky than it was yeah. based on quality. Yeah. Uh, the big talking point from that for me, I was, how was Tua? I know they it's being addressed. It's being discussed, but how on earth did they allow him to stay in that game? I, I knew this was going to come up and it, I knew I was instantly going to be angry when it came up because what bothers me the most about it is they have all these rules set up to protect players. And then they are so, disrespectful about the rule 
that it just really pisses me off because they then went on to say post game that it had nothing to do with his head. His injury was a lower back injury and he was wobbly because his back tightened up and made him wobble. That is so fucking disrespectful to the rules <laughs> in the NFL that you're going to come out here and tell me like, no, 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 no. He, he didn't. Ha- it wasn't something with his head. He wasn't woozy from being unconscious. His back hurt and it made him wobble like it looked like he got his head knocked in six times. No, that just a coincidence. Like, come on. Come like that alone. He they should be suspended for for blatantly like making up a lie like that. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely think Tua and some element of the coaching staff should be suspended. It's just irresponsible. And yeah, in a situation where you have both the NFL as a whole and the players union trying to yeah. protect players just better. blatantly mocking it, it. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think there's a possibility they're now talking about. They say he's not in the concussion protocol because they're basically in full denial mode that he had any type of head injury there is discussion that he might miss this Thursday game anyway because he has an ankle injury. I think the Dolphins would be wise to not have him play to just avoid the multiple replays of like, oh, it looks like he was concussed on Sunday. He's now already playing Thursday, having gone through none of the concussion protocols and tests. Like, if you're the Dolphin, if you're the NFL, if you're Roger Goodell, I'm calling up the Dolphins and saying, Look, you could face some penalties here, but if you just say he's out with an ankle injury, maybe we can let all of this, you know, the water pass by on this one. But I don't know. It's not a great look for anyone involved. No. No, that was that was very, very crazy to hear that they said it was a back injury. <laughs> and contrast that with Mac, right, who has a high ankle sprain but went off the field looking as if He'd been had his leg blown off. I mean, that was <laughs> it's like full full cry mode. <laughs> yeah, it was like a it was like a you know as if it was sort of an excerpt from Platoon. It was <laughs> it's the picture they have that keeps getting posted. It's like him with someone on both are like sides of him, like holding his arms, yeah. and him just crying in pain as he's getting carried off. And it's, I'm not I don't mean to laugh, but it's photo. it is not a good photo. <laughs> I'm not no, laughing at the injury. No, no. I'm laughing at how poorly he looks in that photo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, overall, I mean, it's one of the most open NFL seasons. It's week three, so cannot read too much into it. But it is one of the – it's a weird NFL season. I guess I have to say, talking if, point if, for me. If you've, survived, if you've survived Survivor, good job, because there's been a lot of upset games yeah. already. Um, even in the Survivor – pool that I do, which you can pick the same team every week if you wanted to. Uh, I think over 70% of the people are already out and that's about 400 people. So it is, it is been a, a weird three weeks of NFL for sure. Yeah. And as, as a quick wrapping that up, I guess I have to do one thing. I have to apologize to the Jags who no, I think mostly Trevor the- Lawrence, you have to Trevor directly Lawrence. apologize to Trevor Lawrence. I think some of that might have gone unaired, but I did question his credentials as an NFL quarterback. Not seriously, but at least I, I asked the question, when would you start to be concerned about Trevor Lawrence? And I think in the two performance. Uh, no, 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 no. Time out. I think you said, is Trevor Lawrence done? That was your question. <laughs> I was, you know, generating conversation. But no, I mean, they look they look good. And he looks good, and actually. Look- I, I, he's playing very well. 
Those last, yes. the last at two the same games. time, at the same time, putting a slight asterisk in because that Chargers team missing multiple multiple players on offense. Herbert, I don't know how he was starting the game in the first place. I don't know how he finished the game. So you know, it will it'll be one of those ones where you go, wow, they demolished the Chargers, but that was you know fifty percent of the, what the Chargers can be, but still a very impressive performance. Yeah, and and I just real quick now that you brought up Herbert and his injury, he that kid has one of the like livest arms I've ever seen. I don't know if you watched the game where he got injured and he stayed in the game. He made like a sixty yard throw, but he couldn't really turn his body because his ribs were like half broken, and he just straight armed it sixty yards right into the receiver's hands. Like he is he has got a cannon for an arm, Herbert. Yeah, no, it's impressive. And my final talking point in the NFL would be there's been a significant drop-off in offensive production so far this season. We're only It's a pretty small sample size. We're only through three weeks. But it's just interesting because for the past 10 years, we've basically just seen an upward trajectory in terms of yards, points scored. You see, we're used to seeing unknown wide receivers have incredible games, unknown running backs have incredible games. And this year, even the teams that we associate with being offensive powerhouses have struggled, and you know, consistently. I mean, the Bills have looked devastatingly good in two games, but then against the Dolphins, kind of came back towards, sort of, sort of regressed towards the mean slightly. What do you think? Do you think by the end of the season, we'll be seeing the NFL we've come to know over the past decade? Or do you think, but for whatever reason, this is going to be a down year from an offensive standpoint? No, I, I think you'll it'll trend back up. I think the issue has just been, I think some of it's been the preseason. And I know that last year was also the preseason games were less, but you were also kind of still dealing with some COVID stuff as well. So I think it's a lot easier to set up your defense than it is to set up your offense, especially when they don't play in preseason. So I think you're seeing a sluggish start to some of those offenses. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I think it'll come back. I mean, I, I'm not too concerned. Like there's just not that many good defenses out there right now anyway. So eventually the offenses are going to play shittier defenses and they're going to be lighting it up as usual. Yeah, I think you're probably right, but it's definitely if we get to week five, six, seven, and it's still looking like this, then then I think it's a genuine talking point. I guess switching topics completely, talking about faltering offensive attacking play, maybe an opportunity to speak about England. Yeah, let me. Can, and, uh, can I pose the question to you, the overreaction question? Yeah, go for it. Will England make it out of the group stage this year? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a complete overreaction. Um, yes, in some ways, you know, I've been consistent in my criticism of Southgate. I have at times been swept up in the highs, but for the most part, my opinion on Southgate has been pretty much unchanged and it remains unchanged, which is he's, you know, very defensively minded. He, the focus is on not conceding and, you know, his argument for why they've done that is that they've looked back historically and the teams that perform best in major tournaments are the ones that are defensively the most solid and England will go into this tournament I mean the question is how defensively solid are they because they have been conceding goals against good opposition but you know a very disappointing performance against Italy where just kind of everyone looked a little bit off the boil so 
I don't know, you can just maybe write that off as a bad day at the office. Against Germany, I guess the concern from Southgate's perspective in terms of the criticism that he gets is that they looked pretty terrible for 60, 65 minutes. And yeah. then when they were 2-0 down and nothing to lose, they opened things up a bit, and then they looked really good. <laughs> and again, it can be an overreaction to read too much into that, but the easy thing to look at is go, well, there's way more attacking talent in this England team than there is talent on a de- from a defensive standpoint. So are you playing into your own weaknesses and not allowing the talent to kind of show what it can do? And, you know, I, I, I still I still expect England to be consistent in the tournament and probably get their way to a quarterfinal in the, at the very least, possibly a semifinal, and then maybe come unstuck against a better team. So let me ask you this. One of the other attributes that Southgate, I think, possesses is he's very loyal, right? And maybe too loyal to a fault. Yes. How do you feel about Harry Maguire still being in the starting 11? Yeah, I think it's impossible to keep him. I mean, that mistake for the combination of just giving the ball away needlessly and then instantly giving away a penalty. I mean, it's, you feel sorry for him. And I think that's the thing is, is like the reason why he can't be playing is because he's not playing consistently to throw him in the deep end, potentially at a world cup, and saying like, well, you're not playing week in and week out, but here you go. Here's one of the biggest moments of your career, and you're not quite maybe up to match speed and match fitness. That's a difficult thing to do to him, and you're actually being unfair to him in that process. So I get he absolutely has to be in the squad. People saying that he shouldn't be. I mean, it's just ridiculous given his performances for England over the last four years. Like he has to be in the squad, almost even if he isn't playing for United at all. But as to whether or not he's starting... I think it's impossible at this point. Yeah. After that Germany match, I think it's just, unless he now goes on a regains his place in the United team and reestablishes his form at club level, it's impossible to see how he could be starting for England. Yeah. And I think that's that too, I think is an issue, right? Because if anything, he could at least fall back on the fact from a confidence level that, okay, maybe I'm not playing good, you know, for United, but, I come to play in these international games and, you know, falling back at least on that confidence that, okay, this, this isn't premier league international. I've always played well. I can step it up. But now that he's not even playing well on the international stage, then you're right. He doesn't even have that confidence that he can rely on and you're going to put him out there and he's not, he's not in form and he doesn't, we won't have the confidence. So you're literally setting him up to fail. So I don't, I don't, I don't think you can put him out there. No, and, and and yes, he's extremely loyal, and you see it on both sides, right? You can see he doesn't trust Trent Alexander-Arnold, so he doesn't get a look in. He really trusts Pickford. I think Pickford's poor form at Everton is a little bit overstated at times. Like I actually think over the past couple of seasons, Pickford's been really good for Everton. So even on club form, I think he probably deserves to be there, even if Ramsdale is kind of waiting in the wings to take his chance. But it's very hard to drop Pickford given how good he's been for England in major tournaments. And then on top of it done, you know, like not going through a McGuire like situation for uh, at, at club level, but yeah, you can tell with Southgate, he really likes trusting specific players and then sticks with it. But, you know, and, and the criticism is compiled by doing things like playing Saka at left wing back, which, okay. There was a moment in Saka's career where he was doing that for Arsenal and his versatility is part of his strong point, but he's established himself 
in the Premier League as one of the most exciting young attacking players to just stick him back at wing back just makes no sense. And in particular, and if you really want attacking wing backs, then why isn't Trent Alexander Arnold playing? So, you know, you kind of you're making defensive minded choices for right wing back, but then playing a player pretty much out of position to add an attacking element at left wing back. Like there's an inconsistency there that is difficult to accept. But you know, this they're lucky it's an easy group. And there's some positives to take from recent performances, right? Jude Bellingham is establishing himself as an undroppable part within this England team. His Dortmund form is really good. His England, you know, he's kind of cementing his side place in the England team. And that's a very exciting prospect to have such a young central midfielder who can be at the heart of this England team now for the next, you know, 12, 13, 14 years. That's a really great thing to have. So there's, there's always positives. The concern is the backbone of what England have done well in recent major tournaments has been being defensively solid. They're conceding more goals than they're maybe used to doing. They were scoring a lot of goals from set pieces. They're not scoring as many goals from set pieces anymore. So, you know, you're kind of the thing, the kind of bread and butter of their performances that got them to a semifinal and a final. Maybe not there right now, but, you know, two months is a long time. So we'll see what things look like at the beginning of November. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was actually going to bring up Drew Bellingham because he started both matches uh, for the Nations League that he just had. So, you know, yeah. it seems to really be fitting in nicely, which is good to see. I, I think I think Maguire aside, the team that lined up against Germany will probably be the team England are using in the World Cup. There'll be obviously some rotation because you're not going to play the same team in every match. And especially, I mean, in the group stages, in the knockout stages, hopefully you're playing the same team. But, you know, with the group that they have and the fact that they should hopefully have qualified after two matches, you'll probably see some rotation in different moments in time in the group stages. But yeah, I think um, certainly Declan Rice and Jude Bellingham looks like it will be the midfield pairing for the World Cup, which is interesting. And and maybe that's upset, like slightly surprising, right? Yeah, can yeah. I mean, Calvin Phillips maybe he's kicking himself a little bit over his move to City. Like maybe he looks back on that right before World Cup and thinks that if he'd been the fact that he's not playing every week is hurting his ability to break into the England team, and he's he's kind of opened the door for other players. Which, when you're a central midfielder and those two other players who are now establishing themselves as the the sort of set pairing are young, you know, they've both yeah. got a long time to go in their career. You got to be a little bit worried, but. But yeah, I mean, it's it's good news for England. There was one topic to kind of wrap up the little sporting discussion that we had that you and I both discussed off podcast, but we haven't had the chance to discuss on the podcast. And that was the the better in the United States who placed a $7 bet. It was like $7.12 oh. on a 25-team accumulator or parlay, depending on where you're from, and uh, got to the stage where the first 23 things had won. And then he posted it on the internet, basically asking for the internet's advice a little bit and allowing people to follow it. I think when he first posted it, his cash out offer was around $150,000, which is when he tried to first cash it in. And that cash in was not accepted. He ultimately ended up cashing it out for $250,000 with two legs of his bet left. Those two legs went on to win. 
So fundamentally, his decision to cash out cost him three quarters of a million dollars. Yeah, so he was he was going to win one. I think it was one point one seven, right? Something like that. Just like right around one point two million off of a seven dollar bet, and he ended up cashing it out for two hundred and fifty five thousand. Which it's a difficult one, right? Because turning seven dollars into two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is amazing. Like anyone placing bets would take that every day of the week. It would be it's a life changing sum of money for the most part. I mean, obviously it depends on how much money you have to start with, but probably if you're throwing on a seven dollar accumulator, I'm going to guess that two hundred fifty thousand dollars is is going to be a pretty big change for him. At the same time, life changing in the sense depending on where you live, maybe it allows you to buy a house. In the very least, it's it's just a long way towards getting a house. But the one point two million, that is. Definitely life pass because yes. that's life changing because there you're paying for a house outright or and with money left over and, you know, really allowed maybe a time to rethink exactly what you're doing in your career yep. and go for something maybe you're more passionate about. I, I, Does it- I think that will go down as the worst day of his life. <laughs> I, 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 you cannot tell me for the rest of his life. He will not think every day, I lost the opportunity to become a millionaire overnight on a bet that had I just not even had the option of cashing out, I win. But presented with the option, I made the wrong decision. Because when you're putting together a 23-team parlay, I think that is at a point you're just luckily picking things. So that part of it to oh, me, yeah, that part of it to me is luck. The part that isn't luck is when you have two legs left and you have to make that decision. That's where like you're actually making the decision and he made the wrong decision. Yes, he won $250,000, but ultimately he made the wrong decision and he goes from being a guy who has a decent amount of money to a person who can almost be set for life. So I think he wakes up every day and I don't think he goes, man, remember that day I won $250,000? I think he wakes up and goes, fuck, had I not cashed that in, I wouldn't be sleeping in this slightly cool house. I'd be sleeping in a fucking mansion right now. I honestly think, and, and I, I honestly think he'll, he'll, it'll be the worst day and he'll regret it for the rest of his life. So, I mean, part of that is dependent on what happens over the rest of his life, right? both positive and negative. I don't mean as in like if his life falls apart, but like if this is the start of you get a house and life starts to look a lot better, maybe you don't throw that level of negativity. But how much better would it have looked? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's also worth noting, right, which for our our British listeners or listeners in a lot of countries, you know, in the US, that's taxable income, right? So he's got to pay, I'm correct. Almost 50%. yeah? Yeah, so it does knock it down quite significantly. I don't know where he lives, so I don't know how far that could go in the housing market. Like obviously if he's in New York or something, yeah, it's not getting you very far. But um, yeah, I mean, I probably would have negotiated like a partial cash out, you know, I would have- Half. Yeah, to like make sure this is a good day, but okay, if so, like if I could have, if you could have cashed out and gone like, okay, I'll take one hundred and twenty-five thousand out, no matter what, this means this is a great day for me, and it potentially wins six hundred more. Yeah, I think that was probably the move. Yeah, 
Um, but I think at that point you can live with yourself. <laughs> because yes. because like because if that if that wins, then it's like oh I could have won one point two, but I won what like seven hundred and fifty. I won three yeah. quarters of a million. That's that's still like a life changing amount. And if you lose, then you say all right I lost out on a hundred and twenty five thousand, but I still made a hundred twenty five thousand off a seven dollar bet. Can't complain about that. But the middle ground, I I honestly think he'll regret it for the rest of his life. Maybe. And I and what I also agree with you, if you could do the partial cash out, you can kind of treat it as if you hedged. Yeah. Like in, in that moment, it's like, okay, it's as if I rebet, like uh, I had the means to put like, you know, 150, 200,000 down on like the other results. Whereas with the total cash out, you weren't even hedging. You were just walking away from your bet altogether. So yeah, I think the partial cash out was the move. But at the same time, I cannot really criticize anyone who turned seven dollars into two hundred and fifty thousand. Like, you know, that's a pretty impressive move. So, and it's true. You know, you said if you're throwing all those selections in, it's more luck. I mean, you can look at what his bet selections were. They're all over the place. They're money line wins, covering the spread, uh, over unders on point totals. I mean, it's just like he has just literally probably looked down the line and picked like one selection from all the games he's looking at and somehow he's managed to win it. But you also run the risk too. I mean, you're going to be chasing that dragon for the rest of your life. I yep. hope he's now still sticking to $7 bets <laughs> and then didn't follow that up the next week with like a $50,000 bet that lost yep. and really compiled his misery. I, I mean, if I remember correctly, he had some games. So yeah, because I'm actually now looking at the bet. He had the UCLA South Alabama game where UCLA was a one to seven favorite and they won on a field goal at expiration as time expired. So like he had, and there was another one or two he had that he won off of like the final play. Not only did they win on the field goal as time expired, they were only in a position to win that because the team they were playing against like went for a fake punt or something like on their, on a fourth down where they could have kicked a field goal to go up a, go up by more than a field goal so like he had luck and botched it getting to the position yeah yeah but his final two just really quickly his final two that he had left was texas a&m minus six and a half over miami they won 17 to nine so they won by eight they just barely covered it and then he had um michigan state washington over 56 and a half and that game ended up being 39-28. So that one was pretty much way over, almost like 10 points over. Uh, yeah. So one comfortable, one not so comfortable. But yeah, I don't... I, I think the half cash out would have been the move because then you also have that adrenaline of that feeling for the rest of your life as well. That eat, well, win or lose, you have a story you could tell at a bar for the rest of your life. <laughs> Yeah. And look, who knows? Maybe he threw some of the money he cashed out down on that double, you know, like maybe he's done something like that. But yeah, you would have then had that weird switch when you cash out and then all of a sudden he would have been rooting against the things that he was originally wanting to happen. And that's never a good place to be in. But now speaking of topics we've discussed on previous episodes of the podcast, one thing that did happen to me this weekend is I encountered, we discussed it on an episode where I 
I sort of said, I'm sure there is going to be some backlash coming directed at the new Lord of the Rings TV show based on the increased diversity. I'd yet to encounter one person who was upset by this in the wild. But this Sunday, I met one of them very upset by the diversity within the cast and the lack of strong male characters. (laughs) I don't get it because... I, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't even know. I think there are strong male characters, one. And I think, I think a lot of the pushback, too, is that there's like, well, there's no strong male characters, but there's all these strong female characters. But there's not because they're all flawed. Like even, even Galadriel has like major flaws. She's very short-sighted, you know, like she's been known to like be stubborn, like not, no one is perfect in the show. I think that's what the show is supposed to show you is that everyone is human and has flaws, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It's crazy. It was unbelievable. There are moments when you're talking to someone and you're having those conversations and look, for starters, you know, I was never going to be able to change his mind. You know, that is someone who is the position that they have is unmovable. But it was, it fascinated me. Like I had a 15 to 20 minute long conversation with him about it because I just wanted to understand it. And again, I'm not like a diehard Lord of the Rings Tolkien fan. He was way more into that than I was. That already put me on a slight disadvantage in discussing it with him because he was kind of referencing the canon and the original literature in a way that I simply cannot do. So there was that bit where I definitely wasn't going to convince him. But just overall... It stunned me to actually meet someone who was genuinely upset. I mean, like, really viewed this as, look at the way the world is going. They've got black people in the Lord of the Rings. You know, like, oh like, my, my God. God. <laughs> like, and I said to him, don't you have better things to worry about in the world? And he said, oh, no, it's, it's like a litmus test for where we are as a, as a society. It was it was so interesting. That's crazy. Disturbing, but interesting. Oh, jeez. And then talking. I know you haven't watched the latest episode, so we'll have to hold off on maybe some of the discussion about Lord of the Rings itself. But we are both caught up on Game of Thrones. What are your feelings about that so far, where we stand? Which I guess we're kind of like the midpoint of the yeah, season. Yeah, so we're six episodes in, so we've just seen the 10-year time jump. Um, I am, I will stay undecided for now because I know the issue is, is that a lot of things happen. And basically I think what we're going to see is those first five episodes were an extended prologue and it was just to kind of get some character development into the two main female characters. Having said that they are still going slightly fast. And the issue I'm having is a lot of people died in the original Game of Thrones, but there was always some emotional attachment and buildup for the most part to a lot of characters' deaths that made them meaningful. I am not liking the fact that you're seeing a lot of characters die that you've seen on screen for seven minutes. Like, what do I care at the end of this? You know, like if that was an important death, why didn't I see this person have important conversations or do important things or mean something to someone else where it kind of just seems like they're trying to make you have feelings for characters where nothing was developed. 
And I think that's a pretty big flaw right now. So I'm kind of disappointed in that aspect. But again, at the end of the day, those could end up being not important deaths in the grand scheme of things. So I'll wait a little bit longer. I think that's a fair criticism. I am bored by it. Like I think if this did not have, and again, I wasn't on, I wasn't a Game of Thrones person first time around, so I'm not really the target audience necessarily. I think if it didn't have the Game of Thrones name associated with it, I think people would be ripping this apart because it's not really that interesting. I think there's not been much action. I mean, we've seen three childbirths, <laughs> like you know, a woman's battlefield. I got it. <laughs> And, and look, I'm not downplaying the importance of showing things like that on television. I do get that to a degree, but I don't know if I need 15 minutes an episode watching just a woman close up on a sweaty woman's face screaming, you know, like, I don't know if I need that, but yeah, I, I, I'm struggling to find any particular interest in any of the characters. I don't find, I don't really see kind of how the storylines, you see where it's going in terms of the conflict between kind of major players but it's just not that compelling and then my other criticism would be they did this 10-year fast forward none of those people look like the people they were playing oh you don't think before. so i i think i think the two main girls I, I i think they look very similar to what they looked like as younger people no oh because I they weren't they that do. young they weren't that young though oh i think you're wrong there <laughs> she was they actually they, casted they casted the young versions based off of the older actresses or actors. Well, that doesn't that doesn't change my mind about anything. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean they did a good job. I, I think mean, look, they did. It, now this depends. I think maybe I misunderstood this. I felt as if um, I, I can't remember her name. The like the main character, the princess, Rhaenyra. will be queen. Rhaenyra. She was seventeen. When the show started, no, she it, was she was seventeen at that last episode. Are you sure? Pretty sure she was about fourteen. I think she when was. They started, I, and then and then I there was a three was, year jump, and then she was about seventeen. Well, she was definitely seventeen at one point because they referenced ten and seven multiple times. Yeah. That was kept getting said. So she was definitely seventeen at one point. Let's even take it that she was seventeen and she's now twenty seven. Yeah. I think she was 17 at the start and then was like 2021 20, before you flash not. forward. But let's say she was 17. You don't look that different from 17 to 27. <laughs> I have I have no friends who when I was in like junior, senior year of high school, and then they t met them in their mid-20s and went, my God. Like aside from weight transformations or stuff like that, which she hasn't had, right? Like there's no similar hairstyle, similar weight, all of that. It's like, oh, you could be like a relative, like I get that, but apart from that, no. <laughs> well, it's just tough though to go from fourteen to twenty-seven in one season. For one actor, is tough. Had all of season one been them from age fourteen to like seventeen or eighteen, and then season two, she's twenty-seven. You figure there's like two years in between the seasons, so the character could be like. 24 in real life so, by that so you know, i've looked like, it up i've looked it up okay she's 15 at the start of the show yeah so she's like 17 at episode five yeah well no she's definitely 17 at some point because they say 10 and 7 yeah. but she's 15 that transformation from 15 <laughs> to 27 or whatever it is i just don't buy it 
if you want to tell me they look similar, I mean, they look, I think they look similar. similar. The hair does a lot of the work on the looking similar part of it. You know, it's like, well, if you give yourself the really weird blonde hair, you're kind of, kind of look sort of similar, but no, I, I don't, I don't think they look that similar. And the rest of the characters, the only one who I kind of felt a little bit that way about was, um, the one who asked the dragon to set herself on fire. Yeah. Whoever, uh, Lena, Lena. Yeah. Whatever there, there I kind of, I was like, Oh, but we didn't see a lot of her originally. So I didn't have sort of her, what she looked like kind of imprinted in my brain the same way, but there I kind of bought it, but everyone else, the, the sun does not look the same. Like <laughs> the, the, the guy who Rhaenyra married, I mean, that is, that is, <laughs> that's like when they've recast someone in the middle of a TV show. That's like watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when the mother changed, you know, like that's, you, you, you cannot convince yourself it's the same person. I don't know. I, I'll I'll give it a few more, but I am slightly disappointed in. They're trying to emulate a lot of the things that made the original throne successful, but not putting in the effort to make the payouts worth it. Oh, can we also? That's my final point on this on this topic. In emulating what made the original Game of Thrones, and maybe again, I'm going to say this, and the internet has already got there before me. But does Game of Thrones have to make everyone with a kind of birth defect, handicap, disability, like a sneaky person? You know, like you in the original Game of Thrones, you have um, the dwarf. The, right? li- the little person? <laughs> is he? He's dwarf, isn't he? He's not a, like a little person is the he's he's got dwarfism. No, I, I, I don't know what they called it. Anyway, in, we, we don't, I don't have to know wait what they called it in, 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 uh, in the kingdom, in the seven kingdoms. But anyway, right. So he was the sneaky character. No, who's the actor? Uh, Dinklage. Peter, yeah, Peter Dinklage. Dinklage. Yeah, he was the sort of manipulative kind of could switch sides at any one moment was the one hearing all the whispers in terms of what was going on in the kingdom. And then this time around, you got a guy with a club foot. He's the he's, you know. I mean, do you? When while Lord of the Rings is pushing to increase diversity, Game of Thrones is kind of increasing diversity, but at the same time, there's a there's a little bit of a stigma attached to people who aren't born as we, you know, in, 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 with slight variations. Well, yeah. I, well, I, I think the clubfoot guy is supposed to be Littlefinger from the original one, who had no deformity but was kind of just. Uh, an a-hole but um the other thing that kind of the only thing that's starting to bother me is just how ridiculous these people look like with the blonde wigs like these young children with these blonde flowing wigs like they look, children of the corn yeah they look they look psychotic like it looks like they a look horror like movie <laughs> yeah 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 now they're and i mean that scene where he's just like masturbating out of the window that was so <laughs> weird that did not need to be in there no, like, that was that was a little over the top. Yeah, that one needs to be cut out. Like I don't know how many people watched that and went, "Yeah, this really drives the story forward." Yeah. And oh, I don't know. Oh, he's a prick. Couldn't just tell us that. <laughs> yeah. But on that note, should we? Wow, <laughs> the, the smoothest transition we've ever had. Should we turn things over to our interview with Jack Downer? 
Yeah, I'm sure Jack's really going to appreciate the that one. <laughs> Window masturbation straight into Pano. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Jack Downer, who is a two-time world Pana champion, football freestyler, football streetballer. I don't know how you like to best describe yourself, but probably the fastest feat we've ever had on the podcast. I guess that's the best way to introduce Hey, I would take that. I would take that. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm super looking forward to this. Yeah, no, it's it's a pleasure. And, and you're the first, you know, we've had professional footballers on the podcast before, never had freestylers or Pana players um, previously. So it's a kind of a new world for us. Oh, wicked. Well, excited to spread some more knowledge, new angles on it. The um, I would I would typically say, other than fastest feet on the podcast, I'll take that accolade all day long. I'll typically say I'm a panel player, which for everyone out there is 1v1 football, which is a whole world. Um, it's like an underground culture, which has really been blowing up um, ever since the 80s. But I found it, not in the 80s, as I'm only 24, I found it um, about 10 years ago now. Nice. And so for our listeners who are unfamiliar, Panna... Mm -hmm. It's one v one. You're on a sort of mini pitch, and you yes. can either you either win through nutmegs or panas, or mm -hmm. through scoring goals and kind of mini goals. Right? That's the two sort of exactly. Options. So essentially, you're in a cage, uh, circular arena normally, and it's a three minute match, and we're in a regulation competition, and most goals wins. However, if at any point you nutmeg or pan the opponent, it's an instant knockout. So it can lead to some pretty tense moments. For me, I look at it kind of like the one v one, the boxing of football. Um, it's very intense. It's like one round. Anything can happen. And you're always trying to get that moment of magic. Yeah. So so I guess just quickly, how? what's the percentage of matches won by actually getting a Pana versus scoring? Yeah, so this is this is um, it's a good question. I would say it. there are slightly different rules um, when you get... There's three governing bodies in Pana. Kind of like in boxing, you've got a number of different belts. And there's some slightly different rules. Um, everyone's trying to maximize the most panners. So that's what we all want to see. Um, I'd say at the moment, it's about 20% um, between the top players. However, if there's ever a discrepancy, say it's like a group stage, um, there'll be a lot of a lot of panners then. But when you get to the very top, it's quite hard to get one in such a short space of time. We're actually debating raising the length of the match to try and get more. However, it's... Uh, there's been some amazing ones recently. A final was won in the last five seconds by a panner. So that was pretty amazing. Um, so, yeah, I think I'd say about 20%, but on a good day, man, I'm hoping for it to be 100. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess. And, and Go ahead, Frank. I was, I was going to follow up on uh, uh, some of the more rules just so our listeners are on the same page. So it was really interesting, too, because when I saw the time, you said they want to increase the time. Mm. It didn't. So I, I was watching a bunch of matches the past few weeks, and it, it doesn't seem like that long of a time. But I have to imagine it's like 100 yeah. percent. So you must be dying by the end of that. You know, like you're full out the entire was like minute 30. Right? Like so that. It's, it's three minutes and it is complete, oh, three minutes. Yeah, sorry, yeah, it's completely flat out. And you're right, it is incredibly tiring because not only are you trying to, there's a, it's a high pressure situation, three minutes. If it, Normally, when I get the ball, I'm going to try and score a goal because if I'm winning on goals, you need to tackle me and that's when I'll be able to panic you. Uh, if you're winning on goals, like say you're 5-0 up, you don't need to tackle me. So you're not going to open your legs because you know the only way I can win through Pana. And this is kind of the mind game that the top players will have. So within that three minute game, there's always a battle for who can almost break the other person's serve like tennis and who can make them miss. So every, every second you're in there, you're trying not to miss. And you're trying to make sure that if you're going for the panel, 
as they're having their legs, you're going to hit it. Because if you miss that, you've missed the goal. So that makes it super tiring. Also, your one-on-one, small space, running at fast speeds, accelerating, decelerating, they're on you. There's no weight limit. I've played against guys that are three times my size in the cage. And I think that's what, one, adds to all the fun, brings a lot of different styles, but it is a workout. However, for me, you know, I pride myself on my athleticism. So I'll, I'll make the games 20 minutes just to, just to run everyone else down. <laughs> <laughs> So then in terms of the sort of sequences when you are going through for a panna, how much of that is just you have a sort of sequence of sort of moves that you want to pull off and how much of it are you actually looking at the other person's sort of feet position? Yeah, no, good question. So typically if I was to play against the public, if I was to play against like more amateur players, I could genuinely just tell you what skill I'll hit them with and I'll do it. Based on, you know, okay, you stand inside on his left foot. I can do this one, this one, this one, this one. There's a whole, you know, dictionary of tricks. Um, for example, when I played against Neymar Jr., who's at PSG, I said to my friend before I played him, I said, I'll hit him with this move. And then I did. Um, and that's Neymar. So I wouldn't say he's, he's definitely not an amateur footballer, but he is amateur in regards to Pana. Um, however, when you're against the top pros, uh, you've got to rely on instinct because it's so fast. Um, it's almost intuition how you're feeling them. You f- you can feel their balance when they're that close to you, and you know when you're getting them off center. And you can almost it's like the matrix. You predict their next step before they've done it. And I've hit panners, which logically makes sense why I hit it. But at the time, I've just done it, and my brain hasn't computed. So I'd say we in we ingrain through training all these patterns, and we in a hope that our subconscious will be able to execute it on the moment. And that's why it's such an amazing moment when you do hit it, because it almost defies logical speed. It's like getting that perfect knockout. You didn't even know, oh, that's the one that put him down. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. That's very cool. I like how you also just casually threw Neymar into that description. Just, hey, uh, hey, hey. We, we, we've got to let the we got to let the viewers know that I'm cool. He, he plays he plays for PSG. In case you didn't know, <laughs> I mean everyone knows, but you're in Paris, so yeah. you know. Specifically, also that. Neymar Junior. You didn't want to get confused with Neymar Senior, just in case they thought you were picking on his dad. Hey, you've got to be nice. To Which the old might guys. even be a better story. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably a better banner player. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess then before we get maybe into more of the details then of, of things like the specific your achievements in terms of the world championships and maybe also playing against professional footballers, what was your journey into Pana like? I assume you were playing a decent level of sort of 11 v 11 football to start off with. How yeah, did you I, end up? I, I was trying to. I was trying to. Um, I started football really late. So I'm 24 now. I started playing football when I was around 10. So I'd had a kick about with my dad and things like this, you know, as a kid. But I said, I said to my dad, I want to play football at 10. And dad's like, okay, we'll try it. He was, um, he, he's had a variety of jobs he, from fireman, policeman, teacher. But he was doing a lot of boxing at the time. He's always boxed throughout his whole life. And I was in the, I was in the gym with him as always watching. I never wanted to do boxing myself. And I saw a clip on YouTube in the office um, where I was, you know, trying to, find entertainment, I found Ronaldinho. And I learned to replicate one of his tricks before I'd even passed the football. So I was already trying skills. Come about age 10, I was I was like, you know, I'm gonna try for a team. I went to the team thinking I'm just gonna be able to do skills and be Ronaldinho incarnate. However, it didn't really work like that. Instead, I was bullied out of my first session because I was so bad uh, that they said, never come back. I joined the worst team in the whole area. We lost every game um, the whole season. And then I went back to that original team by the end of the season, I was their player of the season. So I was improving pretty quick um, and we'd been really focusing them. With this intensity of training, I kind of carried on until now. 
um, I get to about age 14, where I lived, southeast Kent, it's this like tiny, tiny, tiny part right next to the sea, town called Broadstairs. Um, there's no football clubs. I have to walk 40 minutes to even get to a football court to play on. So there's nothing. And um, let alone scouts. In London, it's about two hours away. That's where all the clubs are. So we're trying to get them to come look at me. And I was getting looked at by West Ham, Charlton, Tottenham, Millwall. So it's going pretty well. We're getting looked at, which for my area was quite good. So I was quite proud. Final game of the season, my school was super good level. We were like top four in the country. We'd won the Kent Cup, so a whole area. Um, I'd also won the Kent Cup with my club. I'd also won the league with the club. So we're doing really well. And then I get an ankle injury. Every, everything fell through. Um, I was out for eight months. I've missed the whole of the summer. My social life was all football. So I wasn't really having a great time. And my mum says to me, sorry, it's the most roundabout way, but my mum says to me, she says, hey, Jack, you've got to go play football again. And she has this pound, a pound coin. And I'm looking at her thinking, yeah. And she goes, there's a, there's a club at the town hall. And you can just imagine this tiny village has a town hall. I'm 14. I think I'm really cool. Mum, why am I going to go there? A week later passes. The only day I'm free, because I'm between my mum's house, my dad's house, I'm doing other things. The only day I'm free is a Thursday. And it happens to be on a Thursday. Mum tricks me. She goes, hey, Jack, come walk the dog with me. Yeah, yeah, I'll come walk the dog, enjoying it. I have a nice time with mum. We get to the town hall. Out of thin air, she hands me my football boots. She says, go inside and gives me a pound. I'm thinking, ah, oh, you're clever. So I go in and this is where it, <laughs> this is where it all begun. So I'm this, this town hall, is, it's not a place where you play football. It's like, I don't know, for weddings or something and peculiar weddings at that. But I go in and there's three kids. One of them's about eight years old. I'm thinking, okay, scan to the next one. This other kid is in my year, but he's at a different school, a school I don't like. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, okay, this isn't promising. Then there's the kid in the year below that is super annoying. Everyone will know it. The kid that's a year below you, but he plays in your <laughs> football team. You know, he's there. And I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm stitched up. And then I look to my left and there's this big guy, big. And he's got a hoodie on and he's got a hat on and he's got these headphones over it. I don't know how he could hear anything. And he's doing these moves. And I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I need to learn that. And he was just dancing with the ball. That's the best way I could explain it. And basically, this was a skills session for the local community that he was hosting. He came from London. He'd been inspired by people that came from Amsterdam. And his name was Yofi from Street Zone. And I said, I need to learn this. And then, then in that session, he taught me one skill, which we all applied against each other. Um, it was a basic nutmeg. And I'm nutmeg the eight-year-old. Yes, big win. Then I nutmeg the crazy kid from the other school. Yeah, I'm still happy. Then I was against James. Damn James, right, from the year below. I'm thinking, I'm better than him. I know I can get him. And he destroyed me. He nutmegged me of saying, I didn't know what it was to the point where I said, James, you have to play me again. He nutmegged me again. I hung around. I said to the coach, look, you need to give me tips. I need to learn this. I, I, I scoured YouTube, found the Street Kings, which is Amsterdam originals uh, for street football. They're kind of where it all started in this format. I watched everything. Came back a week later. Nutmegged James. Got my revenge. He never came back. Unlucky James. Sorry, mate. And then I trained with the same intensity for nine years on since then. It's quite, the <laughs> it's, it's quite an incredible start. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and it shows. And, and there was, I was gonna say there was, you didn't at any point want to get back into full like 11 v 11. I've, so I, I, ironically, you were hooked. ironically, I've dabbled in 11 aside since. However, I knew from that moment, this was for me. This was it. For 11 aside, I was, if I played well, I was a defender in Leverside. 
if if I played well, oh the right back he did well. Oh yeah, he oh the right back could have rambled, the right back could have done this. No, there was no identity. Sometimes my team would win, but I didn't touch the ball. Sometimes we'd lose, but I had a great game, and it just there was a disconnect between how hard I felt I worked and what I got from it. Whereas in one v one, if I win or lose, it is determined by how much I put in, and that was what hooked me. There was the creativity, the identity, the street culture, the traveling. It's all amazing, but the fact that I determined my results is what initially that fairness is why I fell in love with it and never really looked at eleven to the side, eleven side the same way since. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. It's just all about you out there. If you then do, when you step into play 11 aside more casually now, mm. or maybe even five aside, how how good do you feel you are? So this is an interesting one. Um, I'm a ve- I was a very limited 11 aside player. For where, what I played, I was in defense. I was dogged, tenacious. I read the game pretty well, I'd say. Um, I have no left foot that is just for standing on. Um, I can't do a long pass, and I definitely can't shoot. So there's limitations. However, uh, across the years, when I was 18, I entered a five-side tournament in London. I actually got scouted for PSV at that. So I must have been half decent then. I then went on to win the Adidas Global MVP, which means out of every tournament in every country, London would do it. I I won that. Then two people from each country came. And then we had all these crazy challenges of target practice, this, this. I kicked the ball off the O2. I played at Stamford Bridge. My team won that. So that was pretty good. And then I got selected to play for the Adidas Tango squad, which was the best players from each country put together to tour across Europe for the best things that Adidas had to offer. I would say when I was playing that, we, we played between five a side to 11 a side. Um, and we did 3v3. Anything small-sided, 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, up to 5v5, I feel I'm pretty good. Um, mainly because no one expects me to be able to defend, and I'm a defender. So like I enjoy that. When I get to 11 aside, I will get found out because I'm not as fast as I should be. I'm certainly not as fit for 90 minutes as I should be. Um, and I don't really have that power to just distribute the ball as I wish. Also, I'm used to playing with a ball that doesn't bounce. So as soon as I'm on grass, I've got blades on and I'm looking at this ball bouncing at me. I'm thinking, oh. However, that being said, um, I have, uh, you know, I said I said that I would be the 1v1 world champion and I did it. I want to be the 3v3 world champion with my team. I want, I'm actually starting futsal, so indoor five-a-side. Um, I want to see how far I can get in that. I feel with the skill set, which I'll develop through that, I'll be able to apply it to 11-a-side. So who knows, I might be the first 30-year-old to go pro in 11-a-side. But that's the aim. <laughs> However, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad, but I'm not as bad as... You don't just imagine me standing in the middle doing tricks. I do actually play. <laughs> No, I do think that's always the interesting thing because I mean, I'm sure anyone who's played football, you know, you will have always someone on your team who's got a, like a bag full of tricks, but maybe no end product. So it's just interesting, and I'm sure you're probably being somewhat humble about maybe your standards because I, <laughs> I can't imagine that you have the control of the ball that you do, and that if you step yeah. onto an eleven aside pitch, you're sort of if lost. You, if you if you put me in a one v one situation, I feel I could handle most players, like genuinely. Even I feel even against pros, either I'm going to get past them or they're going to foul me. Likely they're going to foul me, but I have ways that I mean I I coach pro footballers one v one. So Yannick Balassi, I coach Yunus Musa, I've coached. Um, there's lots of good players that I work with. I understand the game in that sense. It's just application wise, I know where they're at and I know where I'm at, and it's there's streaks, worlds of difference. But um, yeah, compared to average footballer, average player, I think I'm all right. So then talking about that level, that difference between you and, say, a professional footballer, uh, yeah. 11 aside professional footballer and the ones that you work mm. with, uh, where do you see the sort of biggest difference in terms of the skill? 
sort of where is it that you're able to help them that maybe they're not getting that sort it's, of skill level? For me, I've always, my creativity within the sport has came because I understand it. It's not a creativity I felt saying and I thought of a new trick and I flowed with it. That's not really how I began creating tricks. How I, I'm quite analytic. So the way like, this skill works, because at that point, my leg is on the floor and my other leg is free to move at this angle. And that's how I've always looked at it. So when I apply it to um, what I've practiced is obviously being able, I was always small when I was playing 11 side. I was small when I was competing in Panda to start with. I was 15 competing in the men's ranks, um, which nowadays is impossible, unheard of. Um, however, I was learning to shield the ball against guys that were much stronger than me when they were in front of me. Whereas what I take that idea of you will not be able to touch the ball, not because I'm running away from you, I'm still here. And in fact, as you come in, I am slipping your leg the way that a boxer slips a punch and I'm moving forward to attack you or to attack the space behind you. That's what I do for the pros. So for example, Yannick Velassi, amazing player, instinctual, his ability, his speed, his power is, is amazing. It's something that I cannot replicate. However, what I can do is if he's not having the best time, if he's thinking, Jack, I've had a couple of right backs, they're standing off me, they know what I'm like. They don't want to interact. How do I get past them? I can break down, you know, through... I, I He has way more to work with than me. So the way I look at it, I go, okay, we're going to dictate the range on him. We're going to use your body in this way. And I had Jan go from doing four one-on-ones, um, which didn't end how he wanted in one match. A week after training with me, he had five one-on-ones. One, he passed the ball on. The other four were successful one-on-ones, three of which we're using skills that I taught him in that week that he'd never used before. Because what I was giving him is the meta language to actually understand why this is going to work. Giving him the confidence that if I try this, it will work because logically my body is between him and the ball. I'm not using a step over just to feint the opponent. I'm using a step over to so my standing leg blocks the ball so that if they tackle at that point, it's a foul or I'm past him. And that's kind of my philosophy is, you know, maximize your chances by drawing the foul or at least getting past without that. And I'd say that's how, that's what I'd add. But yeah, for me to be able to do it is one thing, but I'm not even too used to sprinting with the ball now. The, the, the speed that they can move just without anyone near them is what separates them to me. It's, it's amazing. I think it's really fascinating, and it's probably your understanding there of the sort of spatial awareness and what you're trying to do, I think might surprise people listening because they, again, I didn't, not to be, I just think people probably imagine sort of Panna and, and sort of the sort of more freestyling footballing as just kind of you've just got quick feet and you're just trying to do tricks and not necessarily having that spatial awareness yeah no i, I can imagine I, I think that's a fair stereotype to have to be honest because it does look flashy and some of the things you see on instagram now they're not even realistic um i've everything i've ever posted has been real if i wasn't trying to be an athlete if i was trying just to be a content creator and a influencer i'd have 10 million followers because i'd just do skits and whatever um, however when i started i moved to london from kent no one believed what i did there was a big street culture there amazing street footballers and I was playing against them proving at 18 I was against all these guys on my own that it was real and I met everyone in London I swear and everywhere I go I take every challenge and I play everyone and I think that's that's the difference some players they do just do tricks and they don't have end product and they are freestylers so fair enough but the top tier um, we all have very good spatial awareness we don't take risks we're very um, aware of the finer things it's just i don't know if everyone can articulate them um because some it's, it's, it's instinctual it becomes instinctual and sometimes it's hard to realize that you've got it but there's there's a lot of thought behind it and it can it's definitely important within the pro game um paul pog was an amazing panel player he can control the center and no one can get near him and i mean i think he's uh he's a great example of it 
Yeah, also, I think it's worth it just oddly enough, it's the second time that we've had someone come on the podcast who's coached Yannick Bolazzi. Because we oh, really? previously we, we've had his uh, sports psychologist on previously, who spoke about hey. the work that he's done with him. So it's we'll yeah, have to get yeah. Yannick Balassi on the podcast at some point because yeah, he keeps coming up. Yeah, Jan is Jan is one of the best athletes I've ever met by a long way. He's, he's, he's just saying about him. one, his energy is amazing, but two, he's he absorbs everything so fast. He would say like, oh, I don't think I've got it. Saying, Yan, you're already doing it as well as me. And I've been practicing it 10 years. It's just like, it's unbelievable. But um, yeah, I want to see, see him back in the Prem, man. I know he can do it. Get him back to Palace. Back to Palace. <laughs> so then, I guess, focusing more on your achievements in terms of becoming the world champion, sort of what was the, what was the moment when you realized that that was a realistic possibility? And then kind of what was the biggest challenge in terms of achieving that goal? Um, I said probably within a week or two of first meeting Pana, yeah, well, there's a tournament. I, I found out there's a tournament. I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to be the world champion in this. So I said it already, um, which is peculiar because I wasn't, I'm not necessarily an arrogant guy, but for this, I just felt like so attuned to what I am. I was so young. I was 14. I thought, I can do that. I can win this. Um, so I'd said it straight away. There are three, I, I mean, to be honest, I don't think the work's done. There are three different types, there are three different belts in a way three titles and i've won one of them twice so i want all three so the works the work's not finished however um the biggest challenge i'd say i've had is there's three governing bodies and one is set up in denmark and one is set up in holland and one set up in prague there is a massive community around the holland dutch uh, in the dutch scene there's a massive community in the danish scene the prague scene is kind of more neutral i've won that one twice However, it's it's very, very hard to win the Dutch one if you're not Dutch. It's very, very hard to win the Danish if you're not Danish. And that's the biggest thing that I've faced. It's not necessarily being the best player. It's being better than the entire setup on the day. Um, because it's still a street tournament, right? It's still underground. Um, I've lost a semi-final or a quarter-final, I think it was. Despite scoring the golden goal twice, I've lost it... Um, and the referee was the guy I was against, flatmate. Okay. All right. So, like, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so, it's, I'd say the street element of the street football is one of the hardest things I've faced. However, um, credit to them, they're running these events on shoestring budgets. And, you know, I think everyone in the scene's amazing in their own way. But as an athlete, as a competitor, I would feel the odds would be much more in my favor under other circumstances so that was one of the biggest things to face is this there's this kind of um feeling in your head was am i actually being cheated here or am i just thinking that because i lost and that was one of the things i had to deal with because i've lost so many tournaments um i have one too very proud of it but before that i'd lost loads and i'd lose i'd always go further I'd, okay quarterfinal okay semi-final and it was always just and I never felt like I deserved to lose. I'm thinking, okay, that surely that was a foul when I shot. That's why I missed. And then I'm, you know, you think about it. But I would say there is a there is a trend, and I'm looking forward to completely shattering that when I have the chance to perform to my best. And and, and how do you get into the tournaments? Is it uh, is it like invitation only, or are there like regional events you qualify into? How does that work? So typically they're invitation only. Um, there has been some um discussion on regional leading but it, it, in in holland you can get into uh the world champs for a regional they got spots 
but it was just very hard to get that completely global. So instead, it's still invitational at the moment. However, I think that'll be changing in a couple of years um, as it's progressing. It really is growing at a rapid rate. But for now, yeah, there's a top 16 players that are normally invited. Other than that, you can um, say Panahouse Invitationals in Denmark. You can submit your videos, they'll get judged and you can get invited or not as a result of that, which is quite cool. So anyone can enter, you just got to get the page. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, do you have to go over to Holland and get, go on the streets and kind of make some noise? And, and that's how you, you get that invited? Was, <laughs> in a way, that's how my first tournament was 2014 in Brussels. And I only got invited because I did a nutmeg that I posted and it was going pretty big. And so one of the guys, Christopher Licht, he's a legend, he mentioned, he messaged me saying, yeah, you're good enough to compete. And I was like, oh, okay. And that was it. That was what got the ball rolling. So in a way, you do have to, if, you, if you're making noise, it will get noticed. And I think that's cool. And so regular listeners of the podcast will know that I'm the one, I'm the one who here who asked the, the kind of depressing questions. And <laughs> anyone following you will have seen that you've But gone... don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll come back and pick you up with a better one. So <laughs> exactly. just, just weather the storm for now and I'll come in with a good one. But <laughs> anyone following me will have seen that you've gone through a pretty challenging sort of health injury situation in recent months. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit of the, kind of the details of exactly what happened and, and then how difficult it's been yeah. for you to get back to full fitness? Yeah. Um, to put it to put it lightly, it's almost impossible to say how difficult it was because it's it's pretty much just still ongoing. Uh, truth of it was, I think it was about fourteen months ago now. I was playing in a charity match. Everything was going really well. I just I just trained for pretty much a year straight. All the COVID I trained, everything trained, and the world champs coming up. I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to get all three of them. They're, they're between start of August, uh, start of August, mid-August and September. So you just kind of hit them all. And then in June, so just coming to run up, I just had a holiday with my girlfriend. I was relaxing. I wasn't taking it too crazy because the year before I went in with a couple of injuries in my knees. Um, so I was thinking, yeah, let's, I, was, I was hitting it right. And um, my mate had a charity match and he'd been invited. It was for TikTok and he's my flatmate. And I thought, yeah, I'll go. I'll play as well. Team was so bad. My friend's a goalie. And so we just decided to long ball it. So he's long balling it to me. I'm doing some tricks, nutmegs, whatever, enjoying. The goalkeeper dropped the ball. I kicked it in, thought nothing of it. Thought, well, that's what I'm meant to do. Next time there's a long ball, goalkeeper obviously didn't like what I'd done and decides he was already about five foot out of his box. I was blindsided by a defender, so I couldn't actually see him. He was sprinting towards me. His 15 stone propelled through a flying knee, I would best describe it, into my abdomen. He wasn't looking at the ball. He just wanted to um messed me up and he did so i at that point i obviously laying on the floor i was winded however i've been winded many times before and you know normally after five seconds you take a breath however i didn't take a breath for five seconds 10 seconds 20 i took a breath after about 45 seconds and during that time i was convinced i was dying so i held the goalkeeper's hand although he didn't want to be there and um oh sorry so i held the goalkeeper's hand although he didn't want to be there and because i didn't want to die alone what what followed was everyone trying to say, hey, Jack, stay, you know, it's a TikTok event, they like, stay, and I'm saying, no, I've, I've got to go. They called an ambulance for me, but they didn't accept it because um, a variety of reasons there wasn't any. So I took myself in a taxi to the hospital, which took an hour and a half, um, paid £150 to it, and me and my girlfriend went. And I remember sitting there, and I was in so much pain, but I wasn't crying, I was just in pain, just kind of this guttural pain. And ironically... I'd been watching a series called Vikings. You're going to think this is a super random tangent. However, Ragnar Lofbrook, he's a legend. I don't know if you've watched it, but if you have, he's a legend. 
Have you watched it? I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, right. Good. That's why he got the beard. But the um, I, I would have grown a beard for Regner as well, but I can't. So anyway, he'd just been stabbed in his liver, right? And we just watched this the day before. And then he'd laid down in the battlefield for two days. And then he's gone back fighting. He'd healed his own liver. And I was thinking, man. So anyway, this is in my head whilst I'm in the, host- uh, in the taxi holding girlfriend's hand. And I think, I almost have to apologize. So I say to her, I say, man, you know, I'm being a wimp. I don't know how Vikings did it. Then I get to the hospital a while later. I talk to my mum on the phone because whenever something bad happens, I call her. I'm saying, oh, by the way, don't worry. I'm just going to hospital, blah, blah. Go into hospital. They think I have a cracked rib. I'm saying this is not a cracked rib. Anyway, I'm passing out left, right, and centre. They give me morphine. I didn't know what it was. I said, can you please give me something stronger because this is not cutting it. They're like, it's morphine. Start taking it seriously. After six hours, six hours, they take me into the operation room. I remember going in. One of my last memories is me saying to my, she looked really scared. I said, look, don't worry. I'm strong. I'll be fine. I'll unload. loads. And then I'm blacked out again. Next thing you know, I'm waking up. They've got the gas on me. They're saying, oh, just relax. We're counting down from 10. You'll be asleep. They go 10, 9, 8, 7. Just relax. 6, 5, 4. Just relax. And they're looking at each other now. 3, 2, 1, 0. St- I'm still awake. I'm thinking, what's going on? And then one guy goes, that's enough to take down a horse. And I'm thinking, hmm. <laughs> then, I, then, then I go. So my body was in such a fight mode. Um, it turns out at that point when I was sitting in the taxi thinking I was a wimp, I had one and a half litres of blood in my abdomen. I had a grade five liver laceration. Grade one liver laceration is like, you know, your liver's bleeding, uh, you've got a laceration. Grade two is like you've been stabbed with a knife. Grade three is like you've been shot. Grade four and five, if you imagine taking your organ, laying it on the concrete and hitting it with a sledgehammer until it's exploded, that is grade five liver laceration. I know people that have died bled out within two hours um, of a grade two laceration, and I was seen to in six. So it doesn't make any sense how I was still there. Anyway, following the operation, um, they didn't quite know what to do with me. They packed me up to minimize bleeding, and they sent me to the best liver uh, surgeon in Europe. As I was being transferred there, the reason being was because my chordate lobe, which is some fancy part of my liver, had evolved. <sighs> fancy exit. One millimeter away, Um, upon impact I would have died immediately because everything around my arteries had severed and exploded apart from the arteries so there was one millimeter difference there I was told later on which is crazy however I was being sent to this guy because the chordate lobe had to be reattached I'm pretty sure it's something like the first ever successful time they did that was 2017 so it's pretty major operation by the time I get there they opened me up they couldn't take me by hospital they had to take me by a van because vibrations would have killed me I was in a coma at this point. They opened me up. The head surgeon meets me there Sunday evening in the rain in A&E, takes me in, uh, opens me up, looks at it, goes, hmm, closes me up again, doesn't operate. Okay, what's going on there? Well, there's a lot of blood. Um, I'm in a coma for three days. You can actually think when you're in a coma. That's pretty cool and also pretty terrifying. Then um, I wake up. I have a week um, apparently where I'm awake. I can't remember any of it. Then I was in a coma again. It turns out that my lungs had an infection. They filled up with blood. I have scars here where they punched out and drained 750 milliliters um, of blood and fluid from each lung then after that coma where i was meant to be put onto an ECMO machine i have all the scars across my body of the wires that went to every one of my vital organs um there would have been a 20 percent success rate of me living if i'd been put on that machine just before they turned it on i woke up then that's where i have conscious memory um my lungs I was intubated. I had this massive tube in my throat. My lungs weren't working for themselves. I was on life support whilst I was awake um, for a couple of days. I was watching everyone around me die because I was in intensive care. I was on morphine, opium and ketamine at the same time. So I was having horrific trips. I was only allowed to see my family an hour a day. Um, At points, I didn't think I'd ever see them again because of the drugs that I was on. 
they wanted me to go to the toilet in the bed. I couldn't move. It took three people to move me around the bed. By the end of a month, I had um, learned to walk again on ICU. No one expected me to be able to do that. They literally applauded me. They said it'd take three months. However, after the physios were seeing me, it took three days. Then um, it turns out in the final day, as I leave, the doctor says to me, yeah, Jack, I don't think you're going to die. On the final day, he says that to me. Um, so I'm talking to him and I'm asking more about it. I say, well, what, what's actually happened here? He says, well, to be honest, um, we're not 100% sure. They packed me up and the caudate lobe had attached itself in transit. And then they'd gone through a variety of things. They, they think it stabilized well. I had to come back for checkups. But he said to me, he said to me, anyone else on the pitch would have died. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I've trained every day for nine years at this point, I sleep a lot, I treat myself as an athlete, this must be good. So I say, okay, but me being cheeky, I say, you don't know who was playing, Cristiano Ronaldo could be playing on the pitch. He says, yeah, he'd be dead. I'm thinking, well, why? Why am I alive? And he says, to be honest, Jack, I say this because you are alive. That's it. That is the only reason why I can guarantee everyone else would be dead, because I don't know how you are alive. And that was one of the best guys uh, in the field. Following that, I went back six weeks later, um, had the checkups, everything fine. And then it was just about the nine-month rehab process of having a foot-long scar in your guts. However, now my girlfriend calls me a Viking because I healed my own liver. So I'll take that. I mean, it's a pretty – I think the Vikings would be would be, <laughs> would be impressed. It's an incredible story. <laughs> I mean, uh, wow. Thank you. But the, I'd say the incredible bit is my family's support. That was – it was very clearly what I was living for. There were times where – through the trips, through the coma, where you're thinking there was very real points where it tangibly links to the reason I stay in life was one, my competitiveness. There was times where I was hallucinating, genuinely competing with the nurse that I thought was trying to kill me. And um, my family being there. And my dad, for example, he he was working in China at the time. He quit his job because he knew he'd never be able to go back to it with the COVID rules to come see me in intensive care. Um, my mum was a nurse, so you can imagine how hard it is for her going back to work. My sisters and girlfriend, um, yeah. Both had amazing opportunities at the time, which they turned down, so that could be with me. And as a result of that, um, that's for me why I survived quite clearly. And ever since then, we turned into a positive because um, I think everyone goes to ICU eventually, and it's either for you or someone else. And I'm much happier that it was me in that bed and not one of them because I know I'll survive it. So, yeah, ever, ever since then, there's a, there a much high, an even higher sense of gratitude and. Uh, yeah, everything's progressed well. So we've got a lot of projects that came as a result of that. And uh, yeah, we're moving forward. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy story. I mean, have you spoken to, <laughs> have you spoken to the goalkeeper since then? Is, is he aware of how serious things got as a result of what he did? Yeah, he, he's aware. He sent me a message two days later saying, A up, matey, I hope you're all right. <laughs> then, I found out, then I found out that he was hung oh, over. God. He was hung over when he was playing. And to be honest, I'm massively insulted daily by the fact that he was not besides my bed praying that I would survive, thanking me for surviving so he doesn't get done for manslaughter. Because to be honest, what he tries to do is kill me and he didn't. And I, I know it's like negligence in sport and, and things like this. However, there are levels to it. You don't have your liver blown up on a football pitch for a charity match when you're at a TikTok event. Then too, um, you know who got the free kick? Them. So how is that wow. a safe? How is that a safe environment to play in? So to be honest, no, I haven't spoke to him. Um, I I don't really hold any grudges. I know an idiot when I see an idiot. Why do I need to evolve with it anymore? Um, I know I changed my life for the better, and I know my family helped me do it. Also, however, he can have no 
accreditation. And it's just a shame, really. He had an opportunity to give there. He had an opportunity to be supportive, to show what he can be, to apologise. And I've never had any of that. Um, in fact, I actually had his brother try and argue me that it was my fault, which is also crazy. Well, How dare I run for a ball? Yeah, your liver shouldn't have gotten the way of his knee. I mean, that's... Uh... Yeah, I, I just... Oh, why was I attacking him with my organs? I just... Yeah. I just oh. <laughs> Yeah. How dare I? <laughs> have, have you have you talked to the doctor since? <laughs> uh, I did, I did. So, I mean, uh, I had a ten month. Well, fifty one weeks later, fifty one weeks later, I was meant to play in my first eleven aside match. I'd just been to Qatar, I'd just not McName. I'd met Mbappe. Everything was going great. I'd been training sixteen times a week for a whole year. I'd hired my dad. We worked together. My best mate lives with me. Everything's going great. I was in Paris for Champions League final. Me and my friends sport Liverpool. We were super stoked. We just filmed with all these amazing players, Roberto, Carlos, everyone like this at the PlayStation job that I was at. And then we were sitting down at dinner, day before Champions League final, and I was going to play on it the day after with Kaka and all these legends. So I was super excited. That was my first match back. And I was saying to the lovely lady at PlayStation, I was saying, did you know this is my first match back since my injury? She didn't know about my injury. I've just explained it all as we have now. And I was sitting there and I said, oh, excuse me, I'm going to have to go to the toilet. I had incredible pain in my stomach. I thought, I really hope I have to, you know, go to the toilet or be sick neither then I say look I need to go I went I was rushed I rushed myself back to the hotel room I said to my friend John I said can you please get some painkillers I never take painkillers and anyway I started throwing up I threw up uncontrollably for nine hours to the point where I was drinking water just so I could be sick Uh, it turns out that the scar tissue that had originally saved my life the amount of blood that had congealed to save my life originally had created scar tissue which strangulated my intestine and I was going to be sick until I died and uh, thankfully I was in hospital I had amazing surgeons in Paris look after me again exactly one year later um I I didn't eat for three weeks I did survive they were going to remove my whole intestine thankfully they didn't they didn't have to remove any they just got rid of the adhesions um which to this day I'm still extremely thankful for however that week was hellish um my family I was in a different country so on however they all came over which was amazing and a godsend and then following that I had to rehab Again, I, I lost 14 kg. Um, I, I could still walk. I couldn't do a press up. I couldn't do a squat. Um, I couldn't really do kick ups. Um, I couldn't do kick ups with a normal size football because it was too heavy. However, the World Championships were coming back. I trained the whole year for it, and they were two months after. And I started uh, training with about three weeks, uh, two, three weeks before World Champs. I was able to start training again. Although. I said to myself, I wasn't going to compete in world champs because it's impossible. I aim for it. Um, I actually had a job offer come in on the exact same day as the world championship finals in London. And all I had to do was film a TikTok. And I thought, you know what? (laughs) This is really easy money, but it kind of insulted me. Not the job. The job was amazing. But myself, I came back from all this and I was going to be able to do a job, but I wasn't going to be able to compete. And I was thinking, no, if I can do the job, I have to be able to compete. So I turned down the job, um, although I would love the money, having not worked for however long because I've just been dying. Um, however, I then paid last minute for my flights to Prague, where the championship was held. And I went and I lost my first game in the group stage, which I've never done. And I was sitting there thinking, yeah, this, this isn't for me today. It's too soon. Um, however, then it was a winner stays on format for the group stage. You had to be the first to win seven games in your group to go through. And I was sitting there and I realised I have to play the guy that beat me again. Then I, uh, I, 
I was really amped up for it. I beat him, went on to win seven in a row, went to the knockout stage, beat the best Czech player in the quarterfinals, beat an amazing French player in the semifinals. And then I was against kind of my arch nemesis. He's one of the best players from Belgium. He just reached the well, semifinals. He should have got to the finals. It was one of the biggest championships a week before in Denmark. He was on top of his game for Johnny. He beat me in the 2019 European Champs. I beat him in 2020, knocked him out. And now we were meeting again in the final. Three minutes. Um, we, we we finished 4-4. So it's super intense. Then it goes extra time, one more minute. We finished 6-6. I scored with three seconds left to equalise. Then what happens with golden goal, we are back to back. The ball is put in between us. And when they so go, you spin, right? And you just, you spin and then you play. Next goal wins. We spin. He does something where it kicks it and it just goes and it lands next to my goal. I'd never even seen it. Normally, then you would fist bump, right? You have to fist bump before you continue play. However, it's not enforced in this tournament. So I knew for a fact now the ball has appeared next to my goal. He is going to score. And I somehow levitated across the whole pitch. I saved it with my left shin, flicked it onto the crossbar. As he came in to get it, I skilled him up pretty much and I just beat him and scored the winner. And yeah, that was two months after that injury. So have I spoke to the doctor? I did speak to the doctor. I spoke to him, one in Paris, and I said, are the Parisian surgeons good? He said, yes, you can trust them. And then two, I said, oh, by the way, I just won world champs. So, yeah. I'm sure he was much happier with the second update. He's just a legend. Yeah, I, I am sure you're probably his go-to dinner story at every like big event where he has to tell like this, this amazing story. I bet you, you, you've got to be his go-to story. <laughs> uh, well, I would, I would take that. He's, um, he's an amazing, he's an amazing guy. So, so I'll, I'll ask the pick you back up question. You know, you mentioned, yeah, let's go. <laughs> yeah. You already mentioned, you know, like Neymar and, and Mbappe and, and Pogba. So, what was the first time that you were invited or asked to come out to play with like a professional footballer and you got to kind of show them up and, and, you know, like lightheartedly embarrass them a little bit? How, <laughs> how, how great of a feeling was that? And what was that first experience? <laughs> I, I love the way you framed that. Um, for me, I, I would hope I never show up a footballer. That's never my intention, um, mainly because I have so much admiration for them. And the first time that I ever... Um, was in a position to feel thankful for his admiration of me and a footballer was when I met Xabi Alonso. So Xabi Alonso obviously speaks for himself, legend. He was the first autograph I ever collected. That should be his main accolade, Jack's first ever autograph. Um, I'd got it for my birthday when I was around 13 and it's been on my wall at my mum's house ever since. And he was my manager for the Tango Squad FC All-Stars YouTube team. So I walked in in Madrid and I walked in, Xabi Alonso was there in a suit, as my manager, I walked out, I didn't believe it. I walked back in, he's still standing there, he says, Jack, I'm really excited to see your skills. I'm thinking, oh, no way, Xavier Lons knows who I am. That was the first moment where I was just, it was, it, I was in awe. The first moment I actually played with footballer was, albeit just as crazy. Um, I was at uni studying philosophy at King's College London, um, and I got a message, I was just doing an essay, I got a message from Adidas, hey Jack, can you come play five side here? Oh, sorry, my battery. I got a um, message saying, you need to come play five-side here now. I said, I'm writing an essay. I got it said, you need to. I said, oh, all right, fine, I'll be there. I go, and I'm a bit disgruntled, you know, stressed by my essays, deadlines, but I'm thinking, I'm going to play. And then I'm looking around, kind of, I was looking at my boots. I've been mean, given some boots. I'm like, these are quite nice. And then I look up, and David Beckham's there. 
And he goes, ah, all right, um, are you quick? I said, no, I'm not massively, but I will run. And he says, all right, at kickoff, you lay it to me. I'll chip it over. You run around the back and kick it in. And I was like, yeah, easy as that, David. Say less. I'll do it. So I lay him the ball. I run around the back. And I'm thinking, if I bottle this now, I'm an idiot. And I run around the back and he chips it. And I'm looking at the ball. And right now it's in front of me. And I'm still looking at it. The ball is hovering. So I just tap it in. And I was like, oh, that was the easiest goal I've ever scored. I've never seen a ball be placed on my foot like that. Anyway, I scored four that game. David's that good. However, that moment, um, I was like, yeah, you know what? This is ridiculous. I can't quite believe it. Um, I finished that year, despite the fact I had 20% attendance. I got a first. Great. That's why the uni let me stay on. However, I didn't go final year. I said, I'm going to drop out of uni now. I've played with David Beckham. This is what I'm doing. Um, that was probably the craziest <laughs> moment. That's awesome. So then in, in terms of the footballers you've played with, professional footballers you've played with, yeah. who do you think has the skill? You already mentioned that Pogba is extremely good at Pana, but who else yeah. has skills that translate well to the sort of your style of football? St. Maximum would be ridiculous. Uh, mainly because he's so powerful. I mean, I, I, I'll i be honest, Saint, I'm sorry for saying it. I'm up with him twice in a minute, but... I did warn him. I said he thought I was just a presenter. I said, "Saint, please, we're going to do a nutmeg challenge." But I do actually do this. Like, don't just anyway. Um, he would be ridiculous. I think who else from who I played with Pogba, as I mentioned, is just ridiculous. He's so strong. He's both footed with his close control, which is pretty rare to see. Uh, I always think a cold classic, which is a good one that comes up in every five side. But I completely agree. It's Moussa Dembele. Um, that guy is just an animal. I think if you put him in a cage, I would not want to play against him. Um, then an interesting one, I guess this is one you might not have heard before. Jan Vertonghen. I'd go Jan Vertonghen. He, okay. I think anyone, anyone that's pretty much gone through Ajax has learned a lot of skills. And Jan Vertonghen's actually, there's a clip of him in a warm up doing what we call a Niaka, which is a very street specific skill. And when I saw that, I was like, you know, what, I've got to give him credit. Um, he's probably got a bit, I think, Frankie De Jong as well. There, but then, actually, wait, there are some pretty niche footballers that are straight Pana players. Uh, Serginio Dest, right back for Barcelona. He, he's, he's genuinely like a good Pana player. Um, there's a guy called Botaka, Jay Botaka. I can't remember. There's a couple. There's a couple. Wait, I think Quincy Promes would be good because his uncle... Is one of the OG street guys. His name's okay. Ori Proves. Um, he invented a move called the clapper, which, you know, like when you do an L turn in like 11 aside? Yeah. He kind of does this continuously with both feet. And okay. like, that guy invented it. You know, it's just so crazy because it seems kind of common do an L turn, do an L turn. But it, like, he was the guy that did it. So I'd, I'd think Quincy would have quite a bit. Lots of the Dutch players, to be honest. And uh, there's quite a few Danish players, I'd say. And then the, the thing is, why not the Brazilians? Well, if, the truth is Brazilians could apply, apply their skills to Pana easily if they wanted. Um, but I think it's quite fun when you find a couple of randoms that uh, actually happen to play Pana already. And so then you're talking about your experience with San Maximo where you kind of underestimated your skills. Do you often yeah. find that professional footballers, even if they know who you are, like even if they know that you're a Pana world champion, in the back of their minds, do you get that feeling that they think, okay, that's Pana, but like, I'm still more skillful. Like, I'll show you something. I, I think, if anything, it goes the other way. I think they overestimate my skills quite a lot of the time. They'll think, oh, you know what, I don't even want... Because, obviously, they've got something to lose in their head. And in the media's head, they definitely do. So I don't blame them. Like, 
you don't want to just be getting nutmegged by some kid. Like, it make, to people that don't understand who I am, they understand who I am, but to the public, they might not. So I think I get overestimated in a way. I wouldn't say it's an overestimation because it's actually kind of accurate. I will nutmeg you pretty quickly if you just come and take it. However, it goes twofold. Um, some footballers like the challenge and some don't. Neymar wanted, he knew what I was about and he wanted to play. And I think that is such a legendary trait from him. Um, because he is a global superstar, you know, undoubtedly one of the best in the world, one of the best ever at his sort of uh, style of football. And he decided, you know, what, I'm going to give this kid a go, to show me what he can do. And I think that's amazing because it's not, it is transferable, but, um, you know, I, I've clearly, it's stacked. It's, if he was playing against me on a lender side, he would utterly destroy me. And I think that's, that's what's cool is when you see the players go, you know, what, I'm going to try it. Rio Ferdinand was the same. He was like, you know what, I'm going to just try it. And he was super cool with it. And that's how I want the interactions to be. That's why I tried to warn Sir Maxwell, because I didn't want him signing up saying you didn't want. I don't want to nutmeg you and, you know, take fame off your name. You deserve your fame. You have it. But if you want to play the game with me, then that would be amazing, because what you're doing there is supporting an underground sport where everyone looks at you as heroes. You skillful guys, you are the heroes. You say, Maxwell, the reason he inspires Panos so much, we try and take things from the field and make it a small version. We, and Riyad Mahrez, the fact he went from the streets and he played, and then he wanted to play against me. It's like he's still in the streets. He's still holding the culture. And that's why, although they might not see it too much from us, I hope they do feel it because um, they're the players that inspire me to carry on training. Why do I want to be an athlete? Why do I want to live like a pro? Not because I want to be a pro 11 side player, but because I respect them so much that I want to bring, that I try and emulate that in my own field. And I think when they step into my field, it's it's like it's honouring. Like I wouldn't mind losing to them at eleven aside. I wouldn't mind losing at darts or any other sport. Um, however, that's because I I like to think that I'm trying to give to that sport if I was in it, and that's why I respect every player that steps in with me. Not because um, they they could beat me at a variety of things, but they 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 knew what they're up for. So I think yeah, they some overestimate and they think no, I can't go near it at all. Um, some underestimate. Um, but I'd say the, one of the funniest ones was Adam Lallana, actually. One, he's ridiculously skillful, actually. He picked up, I showed him one move and he loved it so much that he nutmegged every kid at the event. He said, hey, come play me nutmeg, come play me nutmeg. Was, <laughs> yeah. And, and he, was, he was super, super cool. And he said to me, now nah, play me. And I support Liverpool, right? And we just won the Champions League. And I was thinking, I said to him, I said, you don't have to play me just because I'm here. Like, and he said, no, nah, I want to. I said, okay. And he said, film it. And I was thinking, Okay, and then I nutmeg him, and he looks at it, and he goes, can I see it? I say, yeah. And he goes, whoa, yeah, post it. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay. But he was just loving it, and he said to me that he wishes he had more time to do this sort of thing. This is the game that he would have loved. And you see that quite a lot of pros. Is hopefully when I'm with a pro, it's not me trying to take anything from them. It's me trying to show them a really fun part of football, because normally it's on a media day. They're getting interviewed here, there. They're having to do this ad, and then they're here with me. Oh, just do some tricks. And that's meant to be fun. I remember Kai Havertz, he, we and him had a great time. At first he was like, oh, I don't do too many tricks. And then we talked about Ronaldinho. And after that, he was doing every trick I've ever seen. I showed him a trick, which I thought was hard. And he did it first go. He was like, oh, I like this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Kai, you've just taken my whole job. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's always interesting to see the kind of the two different worlds kind of colliding there. And it's nice to see that there's an appreciation on on both sides for the sort of Similar skill sets, but also very different skill sets and specializations. I guess my final question, because uh, we don't want to keep you forever, 
but you, you very much early on, you described yourself, you know, not as a content creator, you are a, you know, a professional athlete, but at the same time, you obviously have, you do an element of content creation as part of what you do. And you've also collaborated with some content creators at different times. So having asked you who were the best professional footballers, who are the best sort of content creators out there? Ah, uh, that's a cool idea. No, I mean, I am definitely, I am definitely a content creator. And just in my head, I feel like I'm an athlete. Um, I know what pays the bills, and unfortunately, it's not panel competitions. But the um, the best content creator, there's obviously within the kind of world of street football, lots of us are content creator athletes. So who's the best panel player? There's there's an amazing tier. Pretty much anyone in Holland and uh, anyone in Denmark are amazing. There's a great guy from Germany. Um, who's my inspiration, partly because there's actually a difference between street football and freestyle. Street football is me versus you. We can interact, tackle, score, panna, freestyle. It's like a dance battle. You can't touch their ball and I can't touch yours. And we're going to have judges who like judge our musicality and difficulty and so on. So they're two different disciplines. I cannot juggle the ball and do a backflip and balance on my head. I wish I could, but I cannot. However, there's some players that can do panna and this. And I think that's pretty damn cool. So Jan Yana, for me, has an amazing style in freestyle. It's kind of like b-boy-esque, and yet he also plays padder fluidly, and he's super fast like a cat. And anyway, that guy's a legend. So Jan Yana, spelled C-A-N, uh, it's a Turkish name. He's a legend. He's always been one of my favorite inspirations. Um, but there's many. Just type in Pana House or Pana Knockout, and you'll see many amazing athletes. Um, in fact, this Sunday, I mean, I don't know when this is coming out, so my bad. But recently, in September, there will be... Uh, Pan and Knockout, and that's an amazing event to check out. Um, but then, as a content creator, so let's just go off like YouTubers and someone who's not used to Pana, uh, Simon Miniminter from Sidemen. Oh, he's yeah. Really, he's really, yeah, he's really good at football. I think he would pick it up very fast. Uh, Jeremy Lynch, I've done a lot of training with him. His footwork's really, really, really good now. Uh, Billy Wingrove could pick it up quick as well, but he hasn't done as much training yet. Um, so lots of the, lots of the football, um, you know, known for football. I'd say Toby and Manny, um, both very skillful YouTubers. But who's who's a swerve ball? There is there is a couple. Um, do you remember the Skill Twins? Yeah. You ever watch them? They they genuinely got really good at Pana. Like they could have competed. Um, they'd got really good. There's. I, I know, you know, it's, gonna, it's a really good question. It's going to bug me. I'm going to think of the answer just as I'm going to bed tonight. I'm going to be like, that, he's the one. There are, there are some, and it's because it's such a niche sport. Like some random people just practice it. And you're like, what? Um, oh, okay, here's a good one. JB Schofield, right? He's a rapper. Um, and he's got a lot of, he's, he's based, I don't want to get this wrong. I think he's based in Coventry, but maybe. But anyway, he's based in England. And... Um, he he knows loads of moves like Ack 3000 and things like this and just to have that knowledge and he's like yeah i can hit an acker and it's like what and that's because he actually came from amsterdam when he was younger and i think that's super cool like that was one that shot me so yeah there's there's a lot of lot of skills on every corner <laughs> no which is good to hear and i i think the simon Minimenter one might surprise a lot of people just because i think you know obviously does a, a fair amount of football related video and content but then you just i think for a lot of people you just assume that it's edited, not in the sense that it's misleading, but well, if you do that enough, like if you take enough free kicks, yeah. one out of a hundred no, is going to go in. Oh, as a, as a footballer though, Simon's really good. I just meant as like panna potential. 
Um, as a footballer, Simon's really good. And that's one thing that I have to say about most of these guys, like the F2, Theo, Baker, all of them, they can all play. Like, don't get it wrong. Like, the F2 especially, I've never seen someone kick a ball with that clean, period. I've been on shoots with them, and I know there's stories like, oh, they take all day to do this shot. Yeah. Well, maybe because they hit that shot a hundred times, but they just wanted it exactly perfect. It's not that they didn't do it once. They did it a hundred times. They just wanted it even better. I've never seen, whenever I've seen them do sign, especially Jez on hitting tricks, he, he just goes, hey, look at this. And this is one that he like invented 15 years ago and he does it first go. And it's like, what? And then Billy would go, oh yeah, look at this shot. Boom, it's just gone in. And it's like, I've never seen, that was, I remember the first time I saw the FT live and I was like, wow, because it's real. Like, well then, uh, I mean that's good news too because there's not a lot of positive yeah. content out there about the F two. So we're, we're gonna yeah, play. I mean, yeah, that's it's a shame. Like I I understand bits of it, um, but as someone who's been inspired by the F two, right? Obviously, I'm oh, it's you know, it's not an impartial view, but I think it's a fair one because they bridge the gap between eleven aside and freestyle. They're not hardcore freestylers. They're not hardcore street players, but they bridge the gap. And without them, there'd be so many less people taking up sport. And I think what they've, um, you know, as people, I've spent a lot of time with Bill, I've spent a lot of time with Jez, but I've spent a lot of time with them from when I was a nobody to, okay, now I'm a bit notable. So it kind of makes, I don't know, a bare minimum, it makes financial, you know, be friends with Jack and we both get views sort of thing. Okay, if that was it, that now exists. But it existed before that. And they've um, they've always given me respect in ways that I never felt like they had to. And they always talk highly. For example, um, they won last year, they won at the Football Content Creators Award. And I was nominated and I went with my dad. I knew I wasn't going to win, but I went anyway. Um, I had a good time with my dad. And Billy accepted the trophy and said, no, to be honest, this should be Jack's. Um, and he went on to explain. And I was just like, that's so nice. You really didn't need to do that. And I see that a lot and I can understand that, okay, to be honest, like mainly it's Jez that gets hate and Jez gets hate because he don't like people that don't like him. Why would he be nice to someone that's not being nice to him? It makes sense, right? He just respects himself. And I, you know, I don't, I don't engage with the YouTube. I've never, I've never, I've never really watched YouTube. So most of the beef I never actually saw. However, as a guy, he's a talented guy and I'd be surprised if there wasn't a reason for him making moves, which made people hate him. So He's, uh, yeah, it's a shame because for me, they're legends. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's some, yeah, I mean, I'm not involved in that world, but some of the originals when it comes to sort of that type of football related content creation on the internet. Yeah. But, but once again, I guess I managed to bring in a little bit of a downer. So Frank, if there's a final question, if you can just pick us back up again. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just curious because it's, <laughs> it's such an individual sport kind of, it's just one V one. Who's the poor friend that you have to drag out day after day and just embarrass <laughs> and just say, you know, like, listen, I'm just going to own you for an hour and a half. Like, I'll, I'll buy a few pints when you're done. Can you just like, yeah, here? Just... <laughs> who is that poor friend? Well, I have, I've, I've had a couple through the years. You can't just have one the whole time. However, the, the answer to that is, is my good friend, Billy Mack. Billy is, this is the goalkeeper that sent the ball, sent me to my death. This is Billy. So he got his revenge by blowing up my liver. But the, um, no, he, um, Billy, who, who, he's Rabona GK. So he plays in goal. He's, he's an amazing player. But he, I met him eight years ago 
And sometimes we sit and we try and calculate how many panners I've hit on him. And we just cannot. We just cannot. <laughs> we trained We trained every day. We moved in together and we trained the whole of lockdown, COVID. We trained like four hours a day. He's pannered me once. Once. Wow. And I have pannered him like, it must be millions. But yeah, Billy Mack, <laughs> Rabona GK, this guy has no ego. He is, he is the true trooper. And well, yeah, because you know you've crazy? just, he has no ego because you've absolutely destroyed it. I mean, <laughs> you, you literally can't count. <laughs> hey, there was nothing to destroy, but listen to this. When I won my, when I won my first world champs, um, who did I beat in the final? Billy Mack. So we both got there. We trained so much, and yet I'd negged him loads. Um, however, he got damn good, and we went to we went to Prague. We competed together first time competing there. Um, he had competed at other competitions, and he'd done pretty well. But in this one, he had a really good run. Uh, he had an upset against a really good uh, player for France, and he won that. And then we were in the final against each other. So of course, I nutmegged him in like twenty seconds, but he still got there, and that was ridiculously cool. So that's one of my proudest moments: is not only winning the first world title, but winning it with him was pretty cool because he earned that. He earned that big time. Uh, that's funny. Well, that's yeah, that's great to hear. And and I guess on that note, you know, and, and we can we can end things. But Dak, thanks so much for taking the time to speak hey, with us. It's, it's been a pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, um, no, it's been super good. And uh, shout out everyone that listened this far. I'm, I'm glad my voice didn't annoy you too much. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. <laughs>